0: Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad you're here. We're in a series on the Apostles' Creed. Now, for those of you who don't come from what's called a creedal background, uh, this may seem a little odd to you that this Baptist, charismatic, whatever term you want to use to describe us, we try to avoid terms because we always get in trouble when we do, but whatever kind of term you want to use to define this church, uh, it generally is not a creedal church. In other words, there's a lot that has to do with the creeds, and as you examine them, some were political theological statements about the church. But the Apostles' Creed stands unique in that it predates actually the establishment of the church. Uh, we see evidence of what is known as the Apostles' Creed in the 100s and 200s and baptismal confessions, and in other ways. And it's a, it's really a statement about our faith in Jesus Christ and. God, who is our Father, His Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And it, it really became a statement of faith of those who were being baptized, and then over the generations, a statement of our faith together. And we believe that the creed only draws its authority from the Scripture. The creed, creeds in and of themselves have no power, no authority, other than what is in agreement with uh, the Word of God. And so over these last, this is actually our 10th week of looking at this. So if this is your first week jumping in, you're, you're right in the middle. Uh, I'm not going to review the whole thing or we'd be here all day. I don't mind, but some of you may have other things to do. Um, but we've been putting this framework as we've examined the creed. We believe that the statements in this assist us in spiritual formations. That because it was a baptismal creed, in other words, new believers, when they came into faith and were baptized, they would state these truths. The church, the early church, saw them as statements of foundational faith. So it, it assists us. It kind of says to us, hey, these are the, like the important things of the faith. We also believe that when you look at the Apostles' Creed as a whole it will help bring balance to our lives. That because it's a fairly comprehensive statement about God as creator, his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, his return as we're going to judgment, that it it will help bring balance. Because any one of us is in danger of focusing on a truth and then getting out of balance where we leave some of the other truths that are really important and you've all known people like this. You're, you've all known people who are so focused on the creation story, God the creator, that it seems like the rest of the Bible wasn't even, even around. Or at the other extreme, people who are so, they think that there's only one book in the Bible and it's Revelation. And that's all they look at and all they say. And, and the truth is there are these truths that, about who God is and His Son and the Spirit and the church and the future and the past and the present, and we need balance in our lives. Also, uh, it it helps create community. I I think when we look at the creed, to to think about this, believers through the ages, for 2,000 years, people who are followers of Jesus Christ have been reciting these words together, either in their prayer times individually or more more um, normally in a public setting. And also, around the world today, there are people who are saying this together. So it creates, it creates a community historically and in the present, and it helps direct our steps. If we really believe that these statements are true, they will make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And so over just the past several weeks, we have... Um, focused on the middle section of the Apostles' Creed, uh, which has to do with Jesus. Uh, We looked at the truth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Uh, We looked at the, the truth about the cross. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Scott did a great job of looking at the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it entails. Um, or, or Gabe did. I can't remember which one. Uh, Scott did, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. So, And then Gabe, yeah, Scott did it. It doesn't matter. They did a great job <laughs> while I was gone. You know, you send me on vacation, you have to retrain me when I come back, so but I did listen to both those sermons. Um, and, and last week we looked at he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Why the ascension is so critical uh, more than just where is Jesus now uh, waiting for his return. Today we want to look at this statement from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> there is great Debate, great debate within the church on the return of Christ. Um, there is no debate in the church that Christ is going to return. Let me say that again. There's great debate on the return of Christ. In other words, the hows, the whens, the whys, what's going to happen leading into his return. When, you know, we could spend months and even years debating what people so vehemently declare but don't really know. <laughs> that's, my, that's my belief. Um, we, we, there's a hiddenness to the aspects of what's going to happen leading into the return of Christ and following, and I don't even want to use terms because then... But here's the truth. The church as a whole believes that Jesus Christ is going to return there is a return. And when he returns, he will judge the living and the dead. So this morning, I want to focus on the phrase, on the judgment part. I I know some of you were hoping I was going to focus on just the return part and leave the judgment part out. But I, I want to frame the judgment part in a way that might be different, that might give light, that might give hope instead of fear. You know, because I don't know about your picture of the judgment, but when I was little and younger, and even in college, and even at times now, um, I picture this great white throne, and, you know, if my number is called. Bart Brookens, step to the front. Everybody's looking. Saints, past, present. They're all standing there. Big TV screen. Okay, let's go through the good and bad you've done. And then on the screen moment by moment by moment, every thought, every deed, every... Doesn't that just scare the heck out of you? I mean, to think this is what I've got to look forward to, that this is, you know, the judgment that's going to come. And I, I, honestly, I believe there's an aspect of the judgment of God that we've gotten all messed up because... If indeed we stand in the blood of Jesus Christ who has forgiven all our sins, then we have no fear. We shouldn't be standing in fear. Instead, we should be standing in, thank Jesus, I'm forgiven. What is the difference here? Look, I, I, I want to balance this morning the, these truths about the grace of God, the grace of the gospel, the power of the gospel with the truth that it should make a difference in how we live our lives. Because I've been part of churches in the past where all we talked about was, you better live right because that big TV screen is going to come on one day and judge, you know, everything you've ever done is going to be up there for everybody to see. Versus others who say, it doesn't matter how you live because the grace of God covers everything. Don't worry about it. Just somewhere there's a, tension, a healthy tension and balance that says, look, yes, I stand in the grace of Christ, but it should make a difference in how I live my life. What is that difference? What, how does that look? And, and I, I want to look this morning probably at what you will think is an unusual biblical account to, to, to talk about judgment. And I want to go back to the birth of Jesus, to the birth of Jesus and to look at the account of a man named Simeon. Simeon uh, speaks this prophetic word over Mary at Jesus consecration. Basically, this is Jesus' dedication. I don't think they sang "Jesus, Jesus loves you, Jesus." Yeah, but for those of you new to fullness, that's what we we sing that song here uh, over our children when we dedicate them. But here's what Simeon says to Mary. Uh, about the baby that he's holding. He says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, your own heart, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, this is some baby dedication, if you think about it. For, for Simeon to be holding this baby, the Christ, the Messiah, and to say that he will be a sign that will be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed? It sounds more like a judge than a baby or a Messiah, does it not? And immediately, when we think of the term judge or judgment, we think of it in a negative connotation. Sounds more like a Judge than a baby who is the Messiah. But to be judged literally means this, to discriminate, to separate one thing from another. We usually think of it as being declared innocent or, or guilty. Uh, I was just visiting out in Denver, and uh, my nephew is uh, clerking for a federal judge out there, and so we went into the to the courthouse, the federal courthouse in Denver, and walked around, and it's impressive. It's intimidating. Uh, it's 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 a setting where you're like, wow, this is you know this is a fairly important thing for our country. What's taking place in these judgment settings? But to judge really means to discriminate, to to separate out between what is. What is one thing and what is another? And Simeon is saying that when Jesus comes, he's going to separate all of humanity. It's going to be separated between the division of Jesus and not Jesus. I want to look at what that means for us today, how this judgment comes to pass. And I want to read this passage from Luke 2, the birth of Jesus and just draw some conclusions about judgment in, in the brief time that we have together. Yeah, we're brief, it really doesn't mean anything to me, but um, for, what, for the time that we've got uh, here in the moments ahead. Uh, the passage, let me give you the background so you'll know. The passage takes place on the Temple Mount, the Temple grounds. It's in the Temple. So, what happens in Judaism is that that a firstborn baby, son, is brought to the temple and basically dedicated to God and bought back. It's, the, it's, it's a sign of what happened in the Exodus experience where, where the, the people were set free and, you know, the, the last plague had to do with the death of the firstborn. And from that point forward, every firstborn son is now technically dedicated to God for his service. But recognizing that every firstborn son can't be, you know, really... In, in the service, so to speak, the ministry. The, um, symbolically, they would purchase back the firstborn uh, with some shekels or, if you're really poor, a dove. And they would come 33 days after circumcision, and that usually took place seven to eight days after the birth, so 40 days after the birth of the child. They would try to bring the firstborn son to the temple to purchase him back. So the family uh, goes from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, by the way, I don't know if you, you know, we think of miles and distances. And Bethlehem is really not that far from Jerusalem, six, eight miles. It's not far from Jerusalem. So they, Mary and Joseph bring the baby back to the temple mount. And also there's the purification that Mary's going to go through after giving birth. And so they come back to the temple for this reason. And at the temple court, they meet two people, Simeon and Anna. And I want to focus on Simeon. And he is a godly man. He's a priest who's fulfilling his duties at the temple. And let's look at this full account from Luke 2, verses 25 25 and following. It says, And behold, there is a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that's what I was just talking to you about, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. This song he sings, the Benedictus, the, the, in, in, in the Latin Catholic background. It's one of the songs of the birth of Christ. Is Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. He goes on and says the passage we just read. I just read to you earlier. And Joseph and his mother marvelled at these things which were spoken of him. You think Mary and Joseph don't have a full picture yet of what's going on? I mean, they're got to be so overwhelmed by all of this. And the I mean, think about it. So far, the shepherds have already come and worshiped. They come to the temple. Uh, By the way, I don't think the wise men have come yet. That's just my own belief. For those of you who put the wise men at the manger, move them. They're way on over. I don't think they've shown up yet, you know, because it's only 40 days after. Uh, They haven't fled to Egypt. I mean, there's a lot going on. It's a whirlwind. And here's this guy coming up to them and saying, taking the child and singing this song, speaking this blessing over him. And then they're marveling, and Simeon blesses them and says to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Let's look at what this means about judgment, so to speak. I mean, there are many different angles we can look at this passage, but first point is this judgment. Judgment is based on the fulfilled promises of God and Christ. Judgment is based on the fulfilled promises of God and Christ. Going back to verse 29, he says, "Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight." of all people God is the ultimate promise keeper God is the one all his promises are what yes and amen all his promises are yes and amen and and Simeon is saying God thank you for fulfilling your promise in Jesus thank you for him coming now there are two levels to this promise for Simeon just to let you know the first promise is this Simeon has been promised by the holy spirit that he won't die until he sees the messiah the consolation of israel that's another term for messiah till he sees the messiah so Simeon has been going to the temple on a regular basis fulfilling his priestly duties And on this particular day, it says he was led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. I don't know if he'd been going to the temple every single day looking, but in my mind, he sort of had. He'd been going to the temple on a regular basis and looking at all the babies coming in and saying, Is he the one? Is he the one? Is this the one? And tradition holds that Simeon, at this point, is 115 years old when he goes to the temple. He's not a young man. So Simeon's got to be by this point saying, hey, God, I don't have many days left for this promise to be fulfilled. And so when he sees the baby and the Spirit of God within him testifies this is he who has been promised, can you imagine the joy that must have welled up within Simeon? That the promise is here I have this painting in my office. It's a print. It's not the real painting, but it's always been one of my favorites. It's called Simeon's Moment, Um, and it hangs on my wall. And from my desk, I look at this painting every day. And to me, it's a reminder that all God's promises are yes and amen. It, It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It. Truthfully, some of the promises of God won't be fulfilled within my life, but all God's promises are yes and amen. And it's a reminder to me also to live in the moment that you never know when the promise of God is going to be unfolded in front of you. And and the the joy of living in the moment for the destiny for which you've been created. I mean, think about it. I, I know Simeon did a lot of other things in his life, I'm sure. And he's a priest and he blessed other people and he worked in the temple and he, he may have had a family or not. I, we don't even know. But what we do know is in this moment in time, Simeon fulfilled his destiny by blessing the family and speaking this prophetic word over them. It was his moment. I, I think we have many moments in life, but I, I do believe that, that God's judgment, so to speak, his, his discernment between groups, is based on his fulfilled promises in Christ. Are are you with me? In other words, God promised it. It's a yes and amen. So the first level is this. Simeon's promised you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. It's promised. But the more important promise is that the Messiah is coming. Throughout the Old Testament, from, from the fall of man... We see God saying, hey, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This, I mean, for thousands of years, however many years it's been, from Adam until Jesus, again, another debate we could have, but for however long that's been, now is the day. This promise of God is fulfilled in this baby that Simeon is now holding. We have to remember that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And that the judgment of God is based on the fact that he fulfills his promise to send the one through whom life and redemption and everything comes. So, first point is, judgment is based on the fulfilled promises of God. Second is, judgment is based really, and this is the truth we're trying to get to, on God's salvation presented in Jesus. God's salvation presented in Jesus. Simeon goes on and says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation. This is really incredible, if you think about it. To the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people Israel. Luke informs us that Simeon was waiting for what's known as the consolation of Israel. And again, this is... a. The this, this term consolation means comfort by way of encouragement. Comfort by way of encouragement. So this comfort or way, by way of encouragement that's coming is found in this baby that he's holding, the Messiah, Jesus. The great comfort of the gospel is that our present distress over the consequences of sin is, is found in Jesus. Christ has come to rescue us. Not just the Jews, by the way, but the Gentiles as well. I mean, this guy Simeon, this priestly guy, I, I don't think he's saying, hey, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a he's going to be a revelation to the Gentiles, meaning Israel's going to be restored to its former glory. I think he for the he is really seeing what God's miracle of redemption is all about. All peoples are now going to have the opportunity to come into relationship with God because of the way that's provided in in Jesus. By the way, what Simeon is trying to point out to us, to all of humanity, is this. Man's separation from God because of sin, which went all the way back to Adam, and sin has now infected every single one of us. And God's promise has been, I'm going to make a way for you, for the work of the enemy to be crushed, the effects of sin to be taken away, and for you to come back into relationship with me. That's my promise. Now, on this day, Simeon sees that promise fulfilled. And and the promise is fulfilled in such a way that he's going to save, provide a way for all of humanity to come into relationship with God. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And I also want to say this. What Simeon is saying, what the Bible teaches us is there is no other way other than through life in Christ to enter into a relationship with the one who created us. Here's the third point, and it's based on these other two, but comes together here. Judgment is based on our rejection or acceptance of God's offer in Jesus. Simeon blesses them, and says to his Mary, Mary, Mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon transitions from a prayer of blessing over the child to this prophetic word about, about judgment. Christ's story, his story, and the story of Christianity really is a story of conflict. It's a story of a resolution with God, but a battle that's taking place now between an enemy who wants to keep all of humanity locked in the consequences of their sin and on a God who loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for each and every one of us. And this conflict continues to rage even today. And, and here's, here's the aspect of judgment I've been trying to get to, and I'm hoping that we're, you, you see it. The, the judgment is not so much pronounced upon you as you choose your judgment. In other words, Christ is presented to us as a way to walk in life and freedom. And we have a choice so to speak, to either receive the offer or reject the offer. And to receive the offer is to walk in the love of God. To reject the offer is to pronounce judgment on ourselves. Now, by the way, I understand the dynamic here about whether I get to choose or God chose me. Or, uh, but ultimately, when we stand before the judgment seat, we're going to be judged based on what we did with Jesus. John, in... His gospel says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Light has come and we get a choice of choosing the light or darkness. So here's my very, very bad analogy or metaphor, but go with me just for a second. Where you are will be revealed based on how you what you do with Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my brother. I thought about putting a bunch of pictures, but I chose not to. Uh, I thought I'd spare you my own videos of my vacation. But um, I went to the uh, Grand Tetons because Adam, one of my sons, is working there. So before I went. You know the Grand Tetons, the the base of the Grand Tetons where Adam worked was I don't know seven thousand feet elevation, or so, and, and it's very dramatic because it's like a valley, and then out of the valley the mountains just they're just there, and they go up to like twelve or thirteen thousand feet right in front of your eyes, and so it, it's it's could be I think one of the most beautiful places in the country, I, I think it's phenomenal. So Adam has worked out there for a couple of summers, and he's an outdoorsy. He, hiker, young, in good shape guy. So he says to me, hey, Dad, I, I have a favorite hike I want to take you on. And I said, okay, great. I, I, I love hikes. And he said, well, I, it's, it's a 20-mile hike, and we're going to do it in one day. Oh, okay. And, and <laughs> he says, I don't think Uncle Brian will be up for it, which is true. Uncle Brian was not up for it, and you can tell him I said so when he comes next time. Anyway, um, so I thought, you know, I'm in decent shape. I run, and uh, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape, but altitude, I don't know, 20 miles in one day. That's going to test me, but Adam was really keen on this. He really wanted to show me these views, and you go up one canyon, and you cross over to another canyon, and then you, you hike out, so I thought 20 miles is going to stretch me. But I'll do it. for my son and for the time we're going to get to spend together, we're going to get to spend a day hiking. I know I'm leading into the, a point here. So we're hiking, and at first I'm like doing great. You know I'm thinking, I'm kicking this. I am doing really well here, uh, about five miles in. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if it's the altitude or the steepness of the mountains that jumped on me. And I I don't know if you've been in a situation where you literally felt like your heart was going to come out of your chest. It is beating so hard. uh, And, you know, I'm a little too proud to say to Adam, hey, I need a break. I I need to catch my breath. But um, wisdom overcame pride at some point. And I said, Adam, I just need to catch my breath one second. To which he said, hey, Dad, you're doing great. You're already doing better than my friend who was here last week. Uh, You've already gone further than him, so you're doing great. What Adam failed to tell me on this 20-mile hike was that to cross over to the other canyon was a 4,000-foot elevation change. I'm going to go up 4,000 feet. He also failed to tell me that we're going to hike through snow. We're going to have to climb. I'm, I'm not a climber. You know, I'm a runner. I don't work this part of my body at all. Uh, as you can probably tell, you know, shoulders, arms. I, I'm just not a climber. And so we get to this point, and, you know, we've gone through the Soma. It, it's, it looks like you're about to go up a wall. I, I'm being overdramatic, I know, but to me, that's what it seemed like. And, 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 and at that point, I thought, you know, the state of my heart is being laid bare. I mean, literal heart uh, here. It, it, it's a ju- the, In other words... The work of the hike was judging me and my fitness. I, I didn't have to say anything about where I was. It was judging me. By the way, it was kind of fun for Adam to teach me to climb. He's a big time climber, and I don't know anything about climbing, and you know, he was trying to teach me, which was really helpful considering it was the only way out of <laughs> this place was to, was to climb. And, you know, I, I've exaggerated telling people how many feet it was. It was probably 10 or 15 feet. It seemed like a 100 feet climb. And he's, he's yelling at me, Dad, keep your butt in. Don't grab a rock. I didn't even know you are supposed to keep your butt in when you climbed. Uh, I, I don't even know what that meant. But I'm trying to do all my stuff. And he's like, don't grab a rock that you don't know is firmly attached. Which now, in hindsight, that seems like really important information, doesn't it? the group grabbing rocks, and so we made it over the top, and I, I said to him, we're at the top, hey, Adam, you didn't tell me it was going to be this steep. To which he replies, you know, Dad, I just thought there was some information you, you just didn't really need to know. <laughs> In hindsight, what he was trying to say to me, I think you would have copped out. I think you wouldn't have come if I'd have told you the whole truth about what's going on. And, and here's, here's, here's the difference between that and this. First of all, the state of my fitness was laid bare, which I think is a symbol of judgment. What's going to happen in judgment is that it, where I am is what's going to be revealed. And really, it's where I am in relationship to Christ. And everything hinges on this truth. What do you do with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Have you received him as the one who rules your life and forgives your sins? And if so, then you stand in the grace of God. And if you choose not to, then the judgment that is there is being pronounced. You've, you've, you've chosen the judgment. Now you're saying, well, that seems like you're just playing with words. But I, I think the truth is this, there's... You can't be judged based on a responsibility that is not yours. In other words, God is not so mean and ugly that he says to you, just out of vindictiveness, I'm going to judge you. Rather, he's saying, I presented this gospel of grace to you, a way in which you can come and and you've rejected it, and therefore you've pronounced judgment on yourself. Numerous passages speak of Christ as judge. 1 Timothy, I'm just going to highlight a couple of them for you real quick. 1 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and a view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. By the way, do you know the charge he gives him? I give you this charge? Preach the word. Christ is going to come. Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Timothy, here's what you do. You proclaim Jesus. Just keep proclaiming Jesus. I think it's a, a, a word to us. Christ, is, if we really... Remember, I'm stuttering over myself here for just a second, but it's really important. Remember where I said it directs our steps? That if we believe this... If we really believe that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and this judgment is based for all of humanity on what you do with Jesus, it should direct our steps to do what? Preach the word. To share that word with others. To, to, to believe it. And I'm not talking, again, for those who are new, I, I've tried to delineate the difference between intellectual, a knowledge, and a belief that goes into our hearts. What we believe directs our steps. Simple knowledge doesn't necessarily change the way we live. So for a a lot of us, for instance, today, you know you shouldn't eat this or drink this or smoke that or do, you should exercise. Intellectually, we know. But you know what? We really don't believe it. If we believed it, it would affect our behavior. It would affect the way we live our lives. And if we believe that Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead, then we will share. You're going to go out to a restaurant today, and you're going to meet people that don't know him. What do we do? John 5.22 says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. John 5.26, same passage, so to speak. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Second Corinthians five, ten: For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment is what I'm trying to tell you. Judgment is not some arbitrary standard, but rather it's based on the decision of what we do with Jesus. Let me just kind of bring it to a close, reading to you some scripture and a couple of quotes. Romans 9 says this, What shall we say then? What then shall we say? He's trying to delineate here in Romans 7, 8, and 9 the gospel and how it relates to the law and to the future of Judaism. It's a very complicated, beautiful passage. But he ends up here saying, The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. Again, I think he's going back to the prophetic word that Simeon has given that Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. They're going to be included in this gospel of grace. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Again, a complicated passage that Paul is saying, listen, it's all by the grace of God. Work and Faith in Jesus, it's not by law or a standard. In other words, we can't earn our way into God's presence. It all comes down to Jesus. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's talking about the Jews. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here's the picture I want you to see uh, that really to me is summarizes this aspect of of judgment paul pictures all of humanity as a river flowing in time and into this river is placed this rock this jesus and as the river flows toward the rock there are two choices for those who reject jesus they're crushed against the rock. For those who receive Jesus, they, came, they come and stand on the rock and therefore are saved. It is the ultimate picture to me of the judgment of God. To be either crushed against the rock that is Christ or to stand on the rock and receive salvation. And it's based on the promises. God has promised that this is going to occur that's fulfilled in Jesus, as Simeon has told us, it's based on the means of salvation, which is Jesus, and it's based on our acceptance or rejection of this promise and this means. God has appointed Jesus as judge because he is the rock and the standard by which everything will be judged. John Newton, I always like to do a John Newton quote because Mr. Buddy loves John Newton and amazing grace, but... John Newton says this, When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many there whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many people who I did expect to see. The third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. The grace of God by Jesus Revelation says, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Our response should not be one of fear, but one of worship, worship of Jesus, and a continual declaration of this gospel of grace. Victor Hugo, the the great author um, of Les Miserables, Les Mis... um, that story, I I love this this story of grace. And and the reason he could write such a story of grace, and you know what? People who are legalists hate this story. I mean, really, I won't go into that, but they they don't like the story because this guy gets away with a crime, ultimately. And anyway, the point is this. We all are guilty before God. But by His grace, He he leads us forward. Victor Hugo, at the end of his life, and he could write of the story of grace because Victor Hugo was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a Christian. He understood the the message of grace. And he says this toward the end of his life. I feel within me that future life. I am like a forest that has been raised. The new shoots are stronger and brighter. I shall most certainly rise towards the heaven. The nearer my approach to the end, the plainer is the sound of immortal symphonies of the world which invite me. Don't you wish you could write like this? I do. Let me go on. Here's what I wrote. He says, For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. History, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, satire, ode and song. All of these I have tried, but I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say as others have said, my day's work is done. But I cannot say my life is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight, but opens upon the dawn. To me, this is the picture of grace in Christ Jesus. Judgment is not to be feared. Judgment is this truth that I... Because of Jesus, I have been redeemed. I have been forgiven. I don't have to fear the big HD screen TV of my life works being displayed for all of humanity, past, present, and future. Instead, I get to come and stand on the grace that is Jesus. Revelation 19, which speaks of this end, this return says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. That Jesus, at your first coming, when you came as a baby, when you came fully, fully God, fully man, that even then, this priest Simeon recognized that all of humanity would be divided by your name, by your life, by your death, by your sacrifice, by your resurrection, by your ascension, by, your, by who you are. But, Lord, we, we recognize this morning that at your second coming, you will be declared fully and for all to see King of kings and Lord of lords. There will be no mystery. There will be no hiddenness. And that, Lord, all of judgment is based on what we as humanity do with this truth of who you are. Lord, I pray that this morning every person in this room I pray that the Spirit of God you would draw them to the truth of who Christ is, and that through Jesus they can receive forgiveness of their sins and a relationship with you, God, by grace, and that, Jesus, you become the one who rules our lives. Lord, we thank you. May we receive, may we walk, may we share. May we worship all in this truth of the name of Jesus. Amen. I pray that God would bless you this day as we walk out the truth of who Jesus is.